every lap in under a minute. Every move made to matter. Every decision impacting the outcome of the race. Supercars in Perth. Every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint, May 17 to 19. Book now at Ticketek. Supercars. Unforgettable. Hey, it's Chaz Mostert here, and yes, I'm inside your speaker. I'm in here because I have a special message for you from Clayton in Melbourne. If you're a club, state, or national racer on the circuit or on the dirt in Speedway or rallying, you can now tap into the know-how of Walkinshaw Racing Services, and you don't need a supercar to get in the door. The same expertise that's won multiple Bathurst 1000s and V8 Supercar Championships is now available for you to call upon. From bonnet to bumper, WRS can help you with engines, design, paint, machining, fabrication, and so much more for all sorts of makes, models, and categories. Have a chat with Walkinshaw Racing Services and tell them what matters to you. Call now on 1300 WRacing or email services at walkinshawracing.com.au. A Motorsport Podcast Network production. Hello and welcome to the Castrol Motorsport News Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Van Leeuwen, and here's what's making news this week. Shane Van Gisbergen is a three-time Bathurst 1000 champion. He and Richie Stanaway combined to win the great race by the biggest margin in 24 years ahead of Brody Kostecki and David Russell, which was the fastest car in the field right up until race day. The Bathurst weekend also included an official recording of 300 kilometers an hour in a supercar, a bitter feud over parity, and now it appears a trigger of the parity threshold ahead of the Gold Coast. In Super 2, the round win went to Kai Allen after Zach Best was penalised for jumping the start in Race 2, which cost him the race victory. Aaron Love won the first race but then crashed out of the meeting and qualifying for Race 2. British import Harry King clean swept Carrera Cup in an impressive Mount Panorama debut. Ryan Casher won two of the Toyota 86 races to Cody Birch's one. Aaron Borg won the Super Hutes round ahead of Ryle Harris and Tony Riccadello did Western Australia proud by taking out the sports sedan round. Meanwhile, over in Qatar, Oscar Piastri was an F1 winner for the very first time. He won the sprint race and then finished second in the Grand Prix. Back to supercars, and it looks like the live pit lane concept will be introduced next season, which means teams will be garaged in current team's championship order at each round. Scott Pye is set to join Triple Eight as a co-driver next year, according to a report from someone I'll be speaking with very soon. Ellie Morrow will call time on her Super 2 career at the end of this season, having decided to part ways with Tickford Racing. And a bit of pod news. Sadly, this is my final episode in the host chair of the Castrol Motorsport News podcast. I'll have a bit more to say about that later on. Joining me this week to discuss all that and more is a teammate who spent Bathurst week ducking and weaving the gastro that may or may not have been real, Stefan Bartholomew. Stefan, were you a gastro believer or denier in Bathurst? Hello, Andrew. I should have known you were going to start the pod with this topic this week. You were walking around all weekend with your tinfoil toilet bowl hat on saying that everyone's going to get gastro and we're all doomed. One team principal had it. Did you actually (laughs) turn up a second case of this at all? I don't think that's actually what happened. I do think there was a lot of, to explain what was going on, there was some team hysteria over a supposed gastro outbreak on top of the mountain where the campsites, 50 campsites was the story, were riddled with gastro. 
Um, there was all sorts of dramas. Teams were cancelling appearances at the top of the mountain. They were trying to get supercars to cancel autograph sessions, worried that all of their team uh, or their drivers were going to go down with gastro supercars. You know, Paul Glover, the, the comms boss at supercars, he was tearing his hair out over this supposed outbreak. I, I don't I, – I definitely don't think there was much of an outbreak. I think this was a pretty big overreaction from the teams, but it was certainly funny winding uh, PG up over it throughout the weekend. I'm sure there was probably a little more gastro than Supercars was saying, but not not the full outbreak. That, that was my read on it by the end of the weekend. Yeah, I think the fact that Neil Crompton, he actually had food poisoning suspected. Yeah. So, uh, But the fact that he was absent from the broadcast probably added to the hysteria of uh, what was going on. Yeah, and I think it was all very localised to the paddock when – um, like when I did sort of go seeking some, I didn't wasn't quite game enough to go up the top, but went sort of seeking some insight from people who were up there, and they were going, "Don't really know what gastro you're talking about." I think it was very much a storm in in a teacup, and uh, just quite a weird thing to sort of be uh, going backwards and forwards with supercars about over the course of a race weekend. But anyway, enough of that. Let's get into what was a at times fascinating Bathurst week, and I think we need to start with the parody feud that soaked up all of Wednesday and Wednesday night and continued into Thursday morning. Now, last week we mentioned that Ford was still trying to push through a new aero package ahead of the Bathurst 1000. That package includes a revised front bar with the fog light cheeks filled in a little bit more. And it also moves the rear wing back where it was before Townsville. So that's 25 millimeters back, 25 millimeters up and a new wider rear wing element that doesn't feature the three mil gurney flap that was introduced for Townsville as well. Uh, the issue was that parity that the parity threshold hadn't actually been triggered before Bathurst and eventually Supercar seemed to work out that it would need the Chevrolet teams to sign off on any changes to the Mustang. Now, that was obviously an absurd ask of the Chevy teams because whether they think there is genuine parity already or whether they think they have an advantage, why on earth would they sign off on this? It makes zero sense. And from that moment, it really was a dead duck. Um, here's my question, Stefan. How did we get to Thursday morning of the Bathurst 1000 for the most obvious of conclusions to be reached? I mean, I get there are some contradictions in the rules, but supercars needed to have got a handle on what, what its powers were the week before, at least, and told Ford that it simply couldn't help. Absolutely. That's the that's the short answer to this. It needed stronger leadership to have it all sorted out before race week and any confusion over those rules stamped out because the way it unfolded, it made everyone look bad on the biggest stage that, that we have. What went on as soon as they got to the racetrack, like that was all a political game more so than a scientific yep. one. And you're right, like Ford was never going to get a room full of turkeys to vote for Christmas on December 24. <laughs> it just wasn't going to get through. So it was interesting that Erebus was on board with what Ford wanted to do. They looked at the science and they were happy with it. I had it described to me that um, that Barry actually said in the meeting, just let them have it and we'll beat them anyway. And that was before they hit the track and seeing how rapid that 99 was. But he said, yeah, they can have it. I don't care. We'll just go out and beat them. Yeah, he did want the shift cuts equalised between the cars, though, as part of it. So um, that was uh, that's not to be understated, that element. But I think people might also misunderstand that, like, politically, it would have been great for supercars if that Ford Aero was approved, right? So, like, there's, there's all of this talk on socials and stuff about how there's this supercars conspiracy against Ford, but they were boxed in by their own rules here. Yeah. And unfortunately, the fact that supercars had helped Ford develop the package, you know, they'd given them the track time, they'd shared some CFD data, they did all that before the parity trigger 
was actually triggered for a review. And so they kind of handed forward a loaded gun. And then on Wednesday, like there was all those rumors that the four teams were going to hold the event hostage by sitting out first practice. So I'm just glad that it didn't get that silly and everyone did get on with it eventually. Yeah, I think that the, the 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 real sticking point with that was it was going to become very hard to argue that you have a disparity when you've lost an hour of track time and then you're sitting there going, our cars aren't all that fast. And uh, that was sort of just going to create too big an opportunity for people on the other side of the fence to go, well, yeah, if you sit out practice, you probably won't be that fast. That's kind of how this whole sport works. And in, in the end, the debate wasn't, is there a disparity? It's what's the mechanism for parity here? And the review yep. hadn't been triggered, so so they couldn't do anything. Yeah, no, it was definitely uh, it was definitely quite interesting. And I guess that you know there was all the story. They're going to sit out practice. They're going to pull in on the on the um, on the formation lap of the race, two thousand five US Grand Prix style. Um, there was you know there was talk about. Uh, Triple Eight canvassing teams, Chevrolet teams in practice to not go too quickly, so that supercars didn't decide to go the other way with the shift cut and try and you know make the Chevy one longer or whatever. It was um, it was definitely as you say, it was a it was it was political battlegrounds out there. It was um, it was a really wet, gloomy day, and the the weather really <laughs> suited the mood in the paddock on that Wednesday. It was a pretty fascinating day to be hanging around uh, in the paddock, and I have a feeling we're going to get to go through this whole thing again because you know I think. We're both of the understanding that the the, the the parity threshold has now been triggered by the Bathurst race and there is likely to be a formal parity review coming before the Gold Coast. I know Ford is readying itself to resubmit its proposal and is pretty confident that the parts will go under the cars for the Gold Coast 500. Um, are you ready for parity again number, I don't know, 10 or something for the year, Stefan? Well, it should be pretty straightforward this time because they have actually already done all the work. And that they were ready for the trigger to go off. It was just people thought it was going to go off before Bathurst because they didn't yep. expect the bend to unfold the way it did. Yep. But I, I think the irony of it happening well, that's now. The, that's the other conspiracy is that the bend was a massive sandbagging effort from the Chevs to ensure that Bathurst would be covered off without a parity review. Well, now we're getting the tinfoil hats back out. But again, yeah. like politically, yeah, maybe Ford should have should have been a bit smarter and, and looked further up the road and, and actually – sandbagged at the bend but um, I wouldn't like the sport to descend into that and that is what I don't like about the shift cut things that Supercars has been doing this year because that is BOP like the idea of if you go too fast in practice they might slow you up that's not what this category has traditionally been about and it's not what it should be about but I think the irony of the change now coming through for the Gold Coast is it's going to make bugger all difference there due to the (laughs) nature of that track and probably not a whole heap in Adelaide either. So, yeah, that's uh, that's where we're at. The next bit of news to come out of Bathurst Week was that for the first time, officially at least, a supercar hit 300 kilometres an hour down the chute. It was Shane Van Gisbergen with the help of a mega toe from James Courtney in qualifying and the GPS data clocked him at 300.5 kilometres an hour. Now, it has to be noted that it was GPS data and there are other measures such as wheel speed sensors, but the team was certainly claiming it, according to the chat you and I had with Mark Dutton on Friday morning. What I want to know is, Stefan, as a student of the sport, you, you, you understand these things better than I do. Where do you sit on the Perkins claim from 2005 that they were running in like the 302s or something like that? Yeah, 302 was the claim that year. And again, that was 05 was when they went to a longer drop gear so the cars wouldn't be on the rev limiter for as long. So there was a lot of expectation and hype in the lead up to will they do 300K like 
again, we had this year. And I think part of the beauty of the 300K thing is that there's always just a bit of mystery to it. Yeah. Like a lot of people go and point back to Cedo doing 300 in the shootout in 96, but that was like a radar gun operated by the TV. And I've asked Glenn about that one, and he has no idea if he did 300 or not, but yeah. it was good PR at the time, so they just sort of went with it. And, like, the Perkins one would have been their own wheel speed data. And so, like, on Friday, that was Supercar's GPS data. And they didn't have that in the old days, but any of these measures, they all have imperfections that can distort things. So the GPS signal can creep or delay and a wheel speed sensor can give a false peak as well. It's it's sort of just all part of the fun and, and the mystery of this. My understanding is the supercars guys saw three, 300.5 on that GPS data out of 97 in that qualifying session, but the wheel speed sensor didn't actually correlate mm. perfectly to that. It's and it was, only in the, or it, like yeah, that. it was only in the race when they were seeing 300 across both of those measures. Yep, fair enough. Well, we've done it. Look, let's just say it's happened. No more mystery. It's all sorted. Uh, we definitely definitely don't want to be um, be trying to contradict our own stories that we were rolling out Friday morning. So let's, uh, let's well, definitely- Well, what we can say for sure is they needed the toe to get to 300. Yeah, for sure. No one yep. was doing it on no, their own. Not even Although I, close. I say no one, but Angus Fogg reckons he was doing 309 with no toe in his 1970 Mustang sports sedan, which uh, would have been a fair bit scarier than 300 in a supercar. You would reckon, particularly uh, that's a gnarly looking thing with those big exhausts hanging out the back of it. Boy, oh, yeah. Boy. That was, uh, that was pretty cool to watch cruising around. Um, if we're talking about fast cars, we better talk about the 99 Erebus Camaro driven by Brody Kostecki and David Russell. Boy, that thing was fast, right out of the track. Uh, I just had this feeling, Stefan, that like the build-up was too good for those guys. And I didn't want to ask Brody about it on Saturday night because that would have felt like a bit of a dog act to throw that at him when he's just taken pole. But I did ask him on Sunday evening after he and Dave finished second if that was the case, if the build-up felt too good. I wasn't sure if he'd actually understand completely what I was asking, but my point was that, you know, in nearly all cases, there's an imperfection to every Bathurst campaign, even the winning ones, and they just got everything right, right up until the race, only to make a strategic blunder by not pitting at that third and final safety car. Brody did, definitely did understand the question, and he said that, yeah, he thought about how the build-up had been a little too seamless and that, you know, something was likely to go wrong at some time. Stefan, did you feel for Brody after such an impressive run-up? to the race to not get the biggies? Uh, yes and no. Like, obviously, that stop was the turning point, the one they didn't take. It was right on their predetermined fuel time cutoff on whether to take a safety car or not, and they clearly they went the wrong way with it. But I don't think they quite had the pace of Triple Eight when it really mattered in the race. They were just missing that 10th or two. And, yeah, if Brody had track position, it would have been hard to get around him, but it's not like they had a dominant car on race day and didn't win yeah. it. If, if anything, I kind of felt more for David Russell, more so than Brody. Like in their three years together at Bathurst now, they've gone third, fourth, and second. And they were second at Sandown this year as well. And like Brody, clearly he's got a lot more race wins left in him. But for these yep. co-drivers, you know, like Dave, every race that gets away, yeah, you just never know if that was yeah, yeah, exactly if that was your chance. So D Russ, he just handled the weekend beautifully and I think he should be really proud of the job that he did. But yeah, I would have liked to have seen him win it. Yeah, I think when he went out in that uh, in that uh, practice two, the co-driver session, and did like a five six or like the fastest lap of the day in that car, I think he really 
you know, made it clear that he was there to uh, he was there to play a big game and he was there to try and win that race. And it was a bit like what Garth did, you know, when they had that sealant creeping up through the surface last <laughs> year in the Triple yeah. Eight car, and he just went did a four one or whatever it was in in that practice session. You know, obviously it was a different number, but entirely different circumstances. And I think that was the point where Dave sort of said, "Yep, this is a fast car, and I'm more than capable of driving it as fast as it needs to go." Um, so, yeah, he did do a really good job. Brody really has set himself up for the title, though, by successfully navigating these two big 300-point single races, Sandown and Bathurst. Um, he really could have felt quite good about second on Sunday evening, but he admitted he was still pretty disappointed, which I found interesting given there are those that still try and argue that the championship is bigger than Bathurst. Yeah, well, I mean, he's answering that stuff in the moment, though, isn't he? Like, rationally, the championship is a bigger achievement, and – it's a great points day to be to be second at Bathurst, but he's just lost the race, so it's natural to to feel that way. I think the championship really now it's a battle in two between Brody and Shane. That was sort of the big takeout from the weekend, but 131 points that's not massive. Like it's going to no. be pretty intense from here. And Brody has just got better and better as this year has gone on. I, I think it's really interesting. A lot of people have talked about that US trip when he went and did the NASCAR races. Maybe that was a turning point for him. But it seems to have been forgotten that that was the time where Will Brown's Triple Eight deal came up as well, and to me, that has just elevated Brody. Like he's just had this yeah. laser beam focus since then, and he's taken on this role of team leader and and raised his level. Yeah, I reckon there's probably a sense, you know, we, we've talked about this a lot when we've had a generational shift in the cars, where you know a Brad Jones racing or whatever, a team sort of pops up. Gets their, gets their head around the new car slightly quicker than the powerhouses and sort of looks impressive for a few months and then it all kind of levels out again. But there's certainly a stubbornness to how competitive this Erebus package is and just how well Brody is driving it. He really is a, a remarkable talent. And at a time where, when we're about to lose a remarkable talent, it's, it's fantastic to see that there's guys there ready to step into that void and make sure we've still got – you know, some of the best drivers in the world competing in this series. The winner of the Bathurst 1000, of course, was the 97 Red Bull car. SVG showed that when he has a reason to be motivated, he's pretty hard to beat. Uh, not that it was an easy day for Triple Eight. It appears that there was a fair bit of tension in the garage early on as the two sides of the garage basically went to war over track position and the pit priority that comes with it. In the end, things fell the 97's way with that first safety car and that helped set up the win. Uh, the double eight side of the garage did get itself back in the race despite two double stacks though and we could have been on for a bit of a triple eight showdown before that gear shift tower let go on that car i think how gutted brock looked in the car as he pulled into the garage kind of said it all like they were really in the hunt there right yeah well firstly on that like i don't envy mark dutton's job in that situation no having yeah. to make a captain's call on the overall strategy when it's going to burn the 88 probably even worse when it's the boss co-driving that car but obviously that whole strategy thing was a bad deal for Brock and you had to feel for him when the shift mount broke. But I don't know, like from what Shane said after the race, the 97 had 10 or 15 second fuel advantage over the 88 when that broke. So I think Brock was racing Brody perhaps more so than, than Shane, but yeah, yeah, it could have been interesting if Brock had, had gotten to him, uh, what would have happened from there. I just think that, you know, regardless of the ultimate outcome of the race, like, it really shines a light on how far Brock has come this season because, you know, last year he was getting benched from qualifying and now he's a guy that can genuinely take it to SVG at the big races, you know? Like it's a – I just think it really shows how far that guy has come 
since we were at Bathurst last year. It's a good point from uh, from Bathurst last year onwards. I mean, he's just he's just shone on the biggest stages, like from Adelaide last year to also yep. the twelve hour this year um, in that Merck, and then Sandown and Sandown created this huge expectation on him um, heading into Bathurst this year, and he just wasn't daunted in any way. I, I still can't believe that Triple Eight had two gear shift towers break though. Yeah, yep. like from what Dado told us on Sunday. They sort of wrongly assumed that the triple eight broke because Craig is notoriously pretty hard on the shift, yeah. and they didn't actually warn Brock that they could have an issue with with his car as well. And then, obviously, because of what happened with with Shane mid season swapping chassis, what became the ninety seven car had less miles on it than the other two, and yeah. so that's uh, yeah, that could have been the difference between winning the race and not. Yeah, it's uh, actually. I'd never really thought about that when Dado was telling us that uh, that Lounsey's like the bench press king out of all the drivers. Like he's got the big guns. He's the man with the guns when it comes to uh, ripping on that stick. Mm. Um, now here's and something. They, I want- and they do run different um, different load load levels for the shift cut um, yep. driver to driver based on feel. And we know that some drivers in that team are very particular with how they like things to feel in the car. So yeah, yep. Lounsey's got a pretty big bicep going on, and he he rips it pretty hard. Every lap in under a minute. Every move made to matter. Every decision impacting the outcome of the race. Supercars in Perth. Every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint. May 17 to 19. Book now at Ticketek. Supercars. Unforgettable. Now, Stefan, here's something I want your opinion on. Richie Stanaway was super impressive in the race, I feel. I mean, matching it with Brody, the guy who will probably win the championship, despite having so few miles in comparison this year, was was pretty awesome to see. I get that Triple Eight has gone with a reasonably safe choice in Will Brown as SVG's replacement, but I can't help but think they might have missed a trick here because Richie really has that star power when he's on song. Oh, this is a loaded question. This podcast already gets accused of being the Richie Stanaway fan club. <laughs> so I think I'm going to be have to be careful with this one. I mean, the weekend just gone, the combination of how well Richie went and also the fact that Will had an average one, like that qualifying crash really set them back. Like it, it all does point to one answer. And yeah, I think there's a feeling that they've gone with Will for next year, largely because of Red Bull, like from a marketing point of view and the fact that he's just a proven multiple race winner in supercars. But it's like we said at the time, I mean, Triple Eight and also Erebus, because don't forget, they ran Richie in the wildcard last year. So they've seen him up close and they had a seat available for next year too. And they overlooked him as well. So they've both gone for safer options. And I just hope Grove Racing is rewarded for being bold and and going with Richie. And amazingly, it's the third year in a row that the Bathurst winning co-driver is headed straight to Groves. Yeah, it's just true. this time they shopped early and avoided the rush. True. That's uh, Yeah, that's interesting. I think that, um, look, I, I do actually fully subscribe to the idea that I think we'll, like, Triple Eight will be a more harmonious team with a Brock and Will Brown combo because I think if we look at kind of the star power we're starting to see from Brock, you know, I mean, he can win a lot of championships for that team. You know, he's sort of got that wink up quality as just a guy who can go in there and be very consistent and very successful and can probably establish himself 
as the team leader and go and do a lot of winning and maybe it's better not to have a wild card like Richie in there who is also just incredibly naturally talented. So, yeah, it, it probably is a better choice, but I think it really highlighted just just how good Richie is. And, yes, we do get accused of uh, talking Richie up a little bit too much and we're probably going to cop more of those accusations because uh, right now I'm about to play uh, a chat I had with Richie, you know, about becoming the Bathurst 1000 winner on Sunday evening uh, and a few other things about next year and, and how he finds the Gen 3 cars. And, um, yeah, here it is. Now, I'm guessing you kind of took this Triple Eight drive because it was going to present you with an amazing opportunity to win the Bathurst 1000. You yeah. seem pretty emotional <laughs> at the end of the race. How does it feel to, for that dream to actually come true? Yeah, this this race is was the inspiration for me to, to start motorsport. So yeah. everything's just led to this point, really. So, yeah, this just feels unbelievable to, mm. to actually win it. Um, it just seems like such a unattainable dream at times. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah, I mean, first just to, to actually come here and, and do the race was, was a, you know, a massive bucket list thing to tick off. Mm. And then you definitely have moments where you just feel like, oh, you know, I'm never going to be able to win, <laughs> win yeah. this, but at least I got to drive here. And um, yeah, just got pretty used to parking the car over and, Park Ferme after <laughs> being smashed by um, yeah. you know, other teams and you start to lose hope but then uh, yeah to come come back at Triple Eight obviously yeah I knew it was going to give me a, a good chance of actually getting a result here so um, but you never know um, well I mean a, the 99 was so fast all week there must have been points where you were thinking yeah. how are we going to beat these guys yeah exactly you just you never know and the, we had a from the outside, it probably looked like a very straightforward race, but internally we were managing a lot of issues. Yeah. I had some mechanical issues during my stints, and Shane was was having issues as well. And you just, yeah, you just never know with this place. You know, when, when the eighty eight was slowing, you know, I didn't at first didn't know if it was yeah. the eighty eight or the ninety seven, and my heart sunk a little bit. And you know, you just never know with this place, right? Like we could have had the same yeah. issue. With two laps to go, yeah, yeah for who, sure. Who knows? So it was, uh, yeah, torture the last two hours. <laughs> well, next year you'll probably be in the car at the end of the race. So that's a uh... yeah. Actually, it's a good point because yeah, when you co-drive, especially with someone like Shane, it is nice to to get out and you hand it over to someone like him for the crunch time. Yeah. But I actually probably would rather be in, <laughs> yeah. in the car now yeah. um, to not have have to be sitting in the garage and, and not be in control of what's going on. But, yeah, when you drive with Shane, it's, yeah, that's what kept me calm was just knowing, you know, couldn't really have a better co-driver and, and a better team to, to manage the last 60 laps. What's it been like working with him in general? Like, he's obviously this, like, generational talent. Yeah. I, I think he's one of the best drivers in the world in terms of pure yep. outright ability. Yep. What's it been like to see it up close and look at the data and actually be involved in it? Yeah, it's both, uh, yeah, Shane and Jamie and also Brock, you know, mm. that's three drivers that, yeah, you've got two legends and... You know, Brock's, I think, an up-and-coming legend. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, to to be around them and work with them is just so, so valuable. You can't 
put a price on on how valuable that is because it, it rubs off on you you know yeah. if you surround yourself with with people that you know Jamie's won so many championships so it's nice to be observant of just yeah. how he goes about his life and his his job and um just I guess trying to rep- replicate it and yeah. yeah it rubs off on you and um you know and it's not just the drivers it's all the the team staff as well you know Dado is a you know he's a legend in, yeah. in motorsport and absolutely yeah all of our mechanics you know chief mechanic and our car mechanics and yeah they're all they're all legends really so it's just uh as a driver you you can't ask much more than to be part of a team like this what are your thoughts on Gen 3? It's not to every driver's liking. We know Shane doesn't really like the cars. You've actually come from a background of high-grip open-wheelers and then high-grip GT cars. What's your sort of... How are you enjoying these new spec cars? I really like it. <laughs> so... That's a big step. It's the guys that can get over the way it drives are the ones that are yeah, really doing the business. I like it because... Um, yeah, I just... I've been enjoying it and... I enjoy driving the car and um, it actually reminds me a, a lot of GP2. Yeah. Yeah, very, very s- similar. Uh, just a lot about tyre management mm-hmm. and massive spreads between quality speed and, and race speed. It's, yep. it's exactly like GP2, which, yeah, I enjoyed that series. and Did um, pretty well on it? Did pretty well on it, yeah. Not not quite with the right team, but... Yeah. Um, yeah, obviously it felt like that was a high point in my career being in that series and then yeah, um, yeah it feels very very similar this this new Gen 3 car obviously said, it's not an open wheeler yeah, yeah, yeah. it's the, the racing style yeah. yeah you said in the press conference that you know you're sort of ready to come back and do this properly this time the similarities between when you came into the series last time are really there because you know you won the Sandown 500 you had that sort of success as a, as a co-driver and then went in full time does this feel like, you know, is it all adding up as this is this is going to work? This is this is where I need to be. This is, you know, everything's falling into place for me. I think so, yeah. Uh, I mean, when I look back, yeah, I was pretty hard on myself when it didn't all work out as, as you normally would be, right? Yeah. You know, you're going to be critical of yourself when it doesn't work out. But the more and more I reflect on it in my time here, I kind of feel like, yeah, maybe, maybe I just wasn't in, in the right environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's yeah it helped me I guess cope a little with with how much it didn't work out um, and I think when I look at Groves uh, it's just the polar opposite to the full time environment that I that I went into in yeah. 2018 you know the two car team you know the, obviously the four car team yeah. was presented its issues for me um and I think they're on, on their way up. Um, so it just, yeah, it just feels feels right to me. Well, you, um, Shane mentioned um, after the race that, you know, he's a little disappointed you're not going to the 97. You would have clearly been considered for that seat. Was it disappointing to not get that? Or how did it actually, how did the timing sort of align with, you know, beginning to chat with the Groves and, and that sort of stuff? So, yeah, I mean, the timing-wise, it was basically all within the same week. Because mm, it was like rapid evolution of the driver market at yeah. that time. So, yeah, I, I, I tried to to push it to, to get Shane's seat, but, mm. I mean, it's sort of understand, you know, the, 
the idea behind picking a, a current uh, driver yeah. that's younger and was leading the championship heading into that round where, yeah. where the driver market opened up. But it is a little a little disappointing not, not to have gotten the seat. I would love to have stayed here, mm-hmm. um, especially after our performance today. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I've got faith in, in the Groves that they can make their way forward. Um, so I'm more than happy to, to start working there and, and I believe uh, we can we can get to the front. Have you sort of got the love back for motor racing now? And have you sort of worked out how to balance it in terms of, you know, your life balance? Like, will you live in Melbourne? Will you live in New Zealand? Have you sort of come up with a combo you think is going to help you thrive? Yeah, I'll, I'll live in Melbourne, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, for me, yeah, I, I just feel... Just a couple of years of maturity, maybe, or just, you I know? feel, like, probably more focused than I've ever been yeah. in my life, really. Um, I think it's, yeah, maybe an age thing. I think my age is... Initially, it was a bit of a concern. I started to think, oh, maybe I'm a bit old. Maybe I should stick to co-driving. But, you know, looking at Alonso this year, he's, you know, 10 years older than me and he's yeah. still getting uh, podiums in F1. So I don't think my age is an issue. And it's actually a, a perfect age where you're sort of in between youth and, and experience. Yeah. So I think it's a perfect time for me to come back and try and have a few good years. Speaking of Triple Eight co-drivers, Stefan, you were reporting over the weekend that Scott Pye is off to Triple Eight next year to co-drive with Will Brown. Uh, he has a bit of a sort of checkered pass with T8, does Scott, but he is very close with SVG, who I'm sure put in a good word for him. Uh, and there are no arguments that he's a very, very fast driver. So I guess it does make a lot of sense that he'd be the guy they'd get to 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 join that squad for next year. Well, I'm not sure how much Triple Eight was listening to Shane at all, considering Shane's comments on Sunday about how he wanted well, Richie to replace him. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, Scott's clearly the number one draft pick in terms of drivers who aren't going to be full-timers next year, so it makes sense that Triple Eight have, have jumped on that option. And clearly, I mean, Shane's not coming back next year. He'll be way no. too busy in America for that. So it should be Brock and Jamie in one car, Will and Scott in another, and then Craig and probably another young gun in that in that wild card. It's uh, definitely not a bad lineup if that is how things shake out. Let's move on to this uh, live pit lane thing. Now, we spoke about this back in April when Supercars publicly flagged that it was assessing the idea. So as a quick refresher, the idea is that the garage order won't be based on the previous year's team standings at every round as it is now, but change round to round based on the current team's standings. Now, since we last spoke about the concept, it has kind of been tidied up a bit because there is only one four-car team now with Tickford's downscaling um, and there's no single-car teams with BRT's upscaling. So from what I understand, BJR will have its four cars together next year wherever they are in the lane. I still don't really get it, but I don't really understand what this really achieves uh, in terms of improving supercars racing, improving the show. I don't know. I still don't get it. Oh, I don't think it's going to be the radical and exciting shakeup that some people seem to be expecting. I mean, once you get a few rounds into the season anyway, there's not really that much change among the top no. teams in the team's championship. So it'll settle pretty fast. I think it is kind of funny that Barry Ryan has been such a supporter of it and it could come off the back of them actually winning the team's championship, which obviously yeah. would have traditionally given them the, the number one or two garages for the full season. But I spoke to him about that on Sunday, and he still reckons it's great. So 
So we'll see. I asked Brad about his cars and he said all four will be together and he raised the point of whether changing the order all the time will cause any drivers to actually miss their pit stalls because yeah. they're not sort of used to what comes before their own garage. And he does love the story of when Mark Scaife pulled the HRT car into the, at the time, red Team BOC pit box during the 2005 yep. Bathurst 1000. And, yeah, BJR really missed a trick that day by not putting the air spike in that to HRT car and just having it sit there for a while. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I guess that is one of the things that could prove problematic for the teams. I don't think, you know, when you're bumping in wherever you park, whatever, that doesn't matter. But uh, I think you do, you know, teams do send a bit, tend to build up a bit of a rhythm when it comes to pit stops with the guys around them. They get to know the guys they're garaged either side of. Um, they sort of have an understanding about, you know, who can drive in where and all that sort of stuff. So it may cause a little bit of, um, you know, friction in that way. Maybe, I don't know. I still really don't understand the point of, of really doing it, but it seems like it's a thing that's going to happen. At least, as you said before, that um, there's not a single car team, so they don't have to have any sort of calculation on 1.8 yeah. times the points to put them somewhere in the team's championship and all that sort of stuff. So at least it's simplified a little bit from where the concept was originally. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Stefan, it's time to play some What Caught My Eye on My105.com. I've decided to go big for my final What Caught My Eye on My105.com, and I came across a honey hole of open-wheeler goodness right under my nose in Perth. There's a collection of four US single-seaters up for grabs, including a 97 Dallara IndyCar with an LS motor in it, a 1988 March 88C IndyCar with a turbo Buick V6 in it, an 84 Lola T800 with a Cosworth motor, and a 1965 Legrand Mark III B with an Alpha motor. Now, this whole collection in varying states of repair and disrepair is going to set me back 260 grand. It'll also keep me busy for a while now. I won't be doing the pod and I'll have all this time on my hands. So uh, that's where I'm going to go shopping this week. Stefan, what caught your eye on my105.com? Just just getting all those things um, yeah, into, into the garage will be, uh, will be a challenge enough. But um, I've got my eye on a Group 4 DiTomaso Pantera, the car that was built Ooh. in the mid-'80s by yep. Barry Locke. Like, that thing is an absolute weapon. If anyone uh, hasn't seen it, they definitely need to jump on my 105 to go and have a look. Good call. All right, let's take a look at what happened around the world over the weekend. Max Verstappen was the winner of a very hot main Qatar Grand Prix race from Piastri and Lando Norris, while Lewis Hamilton took Mercedes teammate George Russell out on the first lap of the race. And AJ Almendinger won the NASCAR Cup Series race on the Charlotte Roval, while Ross Chastain, Kyle Busch, Bubba Wallace and Brad Keselowski were eliminated from the playoffs. Okay, Castrol mailbag time. Michael Cruz asks, when was the last year no car in any category was written off at the medal grate? I don't actually know the answer to that, Michael, but I do feel like it was a reasonably tame Bathurst 1000 week in terms of big wrecks. And what was particularly noteworthy was that we didn't see anyone drop it at the grate late in the 1000. You can usually set your watch to someone losing concentration, firing into the wall there with... 20 or so laps to go. I actually spoke to a few drivers about it after the race, and they were saying that with these cars and with the time management, everyone was kind of driving at like 60% by the end. You know, the challenge was staying off the marbles, but there was no pushing like crazy like we had with the Gen 2 cars, and hence nobody got tired and messed up and slammed into the wall. And I guess that leads us to a point that I probably should have brought up earlier, and that's that it wasn't a very good Bathurst 1000, was it? Like, it was a fun Bathurst week. Qualifying in the shootout were great, but it certainly wasn't the sort of balls-to-the-wall Bathurst race we've become 
accustomed to. Is that being a little harsh, Stefan? No, I think that's fair. I mean, it was it was a great event, um, but the reality is it wasn't wasn't a cracking race itself. And I don't think it's new news that they've gone the wrong way with the tyres on these cars. Yeah. And the drivers need to be able to push and not just be in conservation mode all the time. I did still expect there to be more mistakes, even though we knew what the situation was with tyres. And it was just, it was extraordinary that there were no safety cars in the second half. I mean, it was the longest green run to the end in over 30 years at that race. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it sort of didn't deliver the drama that we normally expect. All righty, let's hand out some Castrol stars of the week. I'm going to give mine to young Super 2 driver Zach Bates from the famous Bates rallying family. He's forging his own blacktop path as part of the WAU Foundation Academy. He finished equal third for the round at Sandown, but missed out on the podium celebrations on a count back. But at Bathurst, he finally got his moment on the dais, and he looked like he absolutely loved it. He's a great kid. He's showing some very promising signs as a young talent. There's obviously been a lot of focus on Ryan Wood in that program, so it was great to see Zach get a little bit of the limelight at Bathurst. Stefan, your Castrol star winner? Well, mine is going to the fastest driver over the weekend at Bathurst, mm-hmm. which was not Brody Kostecki, but it was sports sedan driver Jordan Caruso. So he did a 202 in qualifying aboard that uh, beautiful John Gourlay Audi A4. Now, Jordan's actually a professional gamer. So he's done a lot of laps of Bathurst in the sim, but he told me on the weekend that his only previous real-world Bathurst experience was in an XL. So uh, the fact that he different. took almost a minute off his uh, Bathurst PB, he gets my star of the week. <laughs> that is that is definitely pretty impressive. Uh, before I sign off, I just want to say a few words about the last couple of years. It's been an honour to create this concept of this pod and then improve and evolve it over the journey, and I can't thank Aaron Noonan enough for the opportunity to do that and for the rest of the V8 Sleuth team for facilitating it. Uh, AJ Hawkins, our producer, what a patient man he is. Not much slipped through the cracks over the years. And given how many times I said, ah, oh, fuck AJ, I'm going to try that again. It is a miracle how clean the published version of this show was time and time and time again. Uh, Tanae McLeod at Network R for her work on the graphics for the show each and every week. Always very much appreciated. Uh, and Castrol, what an incredibly cool brand to be associated with. Um, so to Yarn and the team, thanks so much for your support. I'm excited about a few little Castrol announcements I've got coming up outside of the pod in the not-too-distant future, so watch that space. Um, Just for a little bit of background, I had the opportunity to do what I'm about to do job-wise a while back, and the reason I didn't, honestly speaking, is that I wasn't ready to give up this podcast, and to be equally honest, I'm still not, but life has to move on at some point. Uh, Stefan, part of Part of what's made this so special is that I've got to do it with you. Uh, Many industry colleagues listening along will know this. People from outside motor racing may not, but Stefan and I are extremely close friends and have been since long before this podcast existed. He's among the people I'm closest with in the world, and at the same time, I have an enormous amount of professional respect for him. And I've at least been working on the assumption for many years that he feels the same about me. We always wanted to work on something together, and I had very high expectations of what that would be like, and somehow it has still exceeded those expectations by a very long way. So, Stefan, thanks for this whole experience. Thanks for your support professionally through what has been great times and personally through what have been what's been a bit of a roller coaster over the past 24 months. Uh, And to those listening out there, I can't thank you enough either. I have a huge amount of respect for our listeners because they clearly recognize where they can learn more about this sport and get proper factual insight. I really couldn't be prouder of this pod and the level of detail and accuracy and insight that we've strived for. It's been an amazing ride. Well, to start with, I can't believe you're breaking up with me when I'm clearly sick. You can tell by my voice. And it's, Sorry, it's my mate. birthday as well, which it's just, that's really rough. 
But uh, it has been fun working with you on this pod. You've been a great teammate. I think something that people probably don't know about this pod is that it's just a phone call between a couple of mates. We don't even yep. run like a Zoom call or anything fancy like that to make it uh, seem professional. But it is a shame at the moment that I can't see you because I imagine you're currently wearing a massive gold chain and, and holding the keys <laughs> to your new Ferrari. Are you really going to sign off without telling us what you're doing? Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a mystery for a few more days. I don't think it's that much of a mystery, but uh, um, but yeah, there's a, it's a very exciting opportunity and I'm very much looking forward to it, even if it means I have to give up something I do love very dearly. You're right. It's uh, it's not too much of a mystery. I had a couple of people in the paddock on the weekend say, Andrew's not really doing that, is he? <laughs> um, so it is, it's funny. I've had it before. It's, it's, it's weird when you are actually sort of part of the rumour mill, part of the news yeah. cycle in the paddock. Yep. But, um, yes, it's uh, it's going to be good for you. And, uh, yes, I wish you the best of luck. Thank you very much. And with that, I think I'm done. I won't be back next week with more Castrol Motorsport News as the host, but I'll still be tuning in, and I hope you will be too. Every lap in under a minute. Every move made to matter. Every decision impacting the outcome of the race. Supercars in Perth. Every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint. May 17 to 19. Book now at Ticketek. Supercars. Unforgettable. Hey, it's Chaz Mostert here, and yes, I'm inside your speaker. I'm in here because I have a special message for you from Clayton in Melbourne. If you're a club, state, or national racer on the circuit or on the dirt in Speedway or rallying, you can now tap into the know-how of Walkinshaw Racing Services, and you don't need a supercar to get in the door. The same expertise that's won multiple Bathurst 1000s and V8 Supercar Championships is now available for you to call upon. From bonnet to bumper, WRS can help you with engines, design, paint, machining, fabrication, and so much more for all sorts of makes, models, and categories. Have a chat with Walkinshaw Racing Services and tell them what matters to you. Call now on 1300 WRacing or email services at walkinshawracing.com.au.